I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. everyone. Thanks for tuning into the show. This is Once Upon a Gene and I'm your host Effie Parks. If you haven't heard yet, episode two of Once Upon a Gene TV has been released. It's all about inclusion with our special guest Tyra Skivington. It's streaming on the one and only Disorder channel. You can download it using your Roku or Amazon Fire Stick. We've also released our first episode on YouTube. So go check it out and give us some of your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Speaking of Once Upon a Gene TV, one of my co-hosts and founders of the channel, Daniel DeFabio, is my guest today. This episode is just a real and raw conversation between two rare parents, and we're talking to anyone who needs a little connection and solidarity, but we're especially talking to families who are just beginning this rare life. Families who are just learning that maybe their child has something wrong with them. Maybe you've just received a diagnosis. And all of the big, swirling, heavy stuff that's happening in those first days, weeks, months, sometimes years. So we're kind of giving a little insight and stuff that helped us along our journeys and ways we learned to cope and find hope And we'll be talking about stuff like this a little more for the beginners out there who need to hear from us. So if you know anyone who has just joined your club, the club that nobody wants to be in, please share this episode with them and we'll just get started. Here's my conversation with my friend Daniel DeFabio. Hi, everybody. I'm welcoming our friend Daniel DeFabio back to the show. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Effie. Wow, I'm thrilled. I think I'm well on my way to working the record for most appearances on your show. (laughs) I think you are. I think this is it. I think you're my number one guest. I'm as Tom Hanks is to Saturday Night Live to your podcast. (laughs) Oh my God, I love Tom Hanks so much. (laughs) Well, I'm really excited to have you back. You know, you texted me earlier this week and you asked what maybe some of those go-to episodes are for families who are kind of just uh, being introduced to this life, who are just maybe finding out about a diagnosis or on the hunt for one. And while in my head, I feel like I have made those or have thought about making those, I realized maybe I actually don't necessarily have that go-to episode for that open wound right now. Um, So I thought, who better to talk about it than with you? So... Well, I hope so. Although for me, it was 11 years. I think of Diagnosis Day as the the big trigger event, right? And for me, it was 11 years ago. So I think it's starting to fog in my brain a little bit from from how fresh, it's certainly not a fresh experience, right? Well, that's actually really good to hear, (laughs) you know, because I think that day is filled with so much trauma uh, for so many of us. 
And we wonder if it's always going to be just like this hot iron seared moment in time that kind of fills up a little space. So it's sort of comforting to know. Right. So for you, it's what, three or four years? Yeah, about three years. Yeah. So maybe maybe there's some comfort in the uh, the hot iron gets a little less hot over time. Yeah, which I guess is true for everything, right? I mean, the ebbs and flows of anything for anyone that's going on in your life, but especially uh, in this world, when you really do have to take it down a little even less than day by day and kind of put it at moment to moment a lot of the time. Yeah. So why don't we just kind of start at the beginning, you know, when a family is heading into, you know, diagnosis day, they're heading into that room, they're waiting for that phone call, they have some sort of idea that they're going to be heading towards there. And all the fear and all of the gunk that surrounds what's happening in the beginning, what do you think are some really important things to notice, even if you have to recognize them for a moment and put them over there? What do you think are some of some of the lifelines that perhaps you should start casting right away? Yeah, I think it's, it's such a overwhelming emotional trigger to get a diagnosis because obviously you knew there was something going on with your child or else you wouldn't have sought the diagnosis. But you're kind of, I think, in the back of your mind hoping it's, it's some milder diagnosis. It's, it's some version of better news than you could have thought of, right? And that almost, maybe it happens for some people, but in most cases you get this rare disease diagnosis and it sounds terrible. And it, it's so much easier said than done, but you have to eventually, and hopefully it doesn't take too long, realize that no matter how bad it is, you're going to live it. You're going to live through it. There's no way out. There's no way of escaping it. And people say, you know, the only way out is through. So, you know, again, so much easier to say that than to, to do it, but it does help to find the other people. So that's the great advantage of a diagnosis, even a horrible bad news. Maybe the prognosis is a short lifespan or something like that. But if you put a name on it or your doctor puts a name on it for you, then you can go find that community and they will have some advice. You know, they will have a lived experience and maybe it's not predictive for your experience exactly, but it will remind you that others have gotten through it. And we were talking about, does the sheer number of people that have gotten through it create comfort? And, and that's interesting to know because, or, and we don't know, but, you know, disease populations for rare diseases might be 100 people or 20 people or something. And maybe 20 people's experience is less comforting than 500 or a million people. You know, it wouldn't be, probably wouldn't be a rare disease at that point. But as you start to see more people who have done it, I think that helps. I think that resets your expectations a bit that it can be done and you will be able to do it too. Yeah, totally. I think especially in the beginning, you know, when you're in despair, there's a lot of resistance to acceptance itself. And I think when you 
feel that the worst thing in the world has happened to you or your child or your family, you kind of are in this moment where you don't think that you're ever going to feel good again or that you're ever going to be happy again. And this is it. Like maybe nothing is ever going to be good again. I think that there is maybe a fleeting moment of that if the smallest bit, but that's just not true. And that isn't reality. And it happens over and over and over in our lives, right? And I think that's how we build up the skills to cope in situations. And we take bits from all those hard parts to help with future hard parts. But especially in this one where maybe you really didn't have anything that even came close to the level of difficulty of finding out that something is wrong with your child and you haven't seen it around you and in your community and in your TV shows and in your magazines, that there's nothing to do but find those people because otherwise you really are circling out there alone. Yeah, absolutely. At least that's how I felt. <laughs> yeah, you, you know from, and anybody who's watched the film I made about Lucas knows my, the first line in that film is my wife saying, when we got this news, we thought we'd never be happy again. And I think a lot of people, that is a logical, justified first reaction, especially if you're a geneticist or whoever's delivering the diagnosis news. If they understandably try to do it in a matter-of-fact way, sort of emotionless way, and they want to keep it black and white, and you go on WebMD or wherever, and you do your additional research, and that's there's no comfort there, right? It's just bad news. And um, it takes that living through it, you know, getting past horrible day one and horrible day two, and I don't know how many, you know, 20 days, 30 days, whatever, to realize there's going to be different types of days, not just the horrible, sad, bad days. You're going to find different life, and that life from most cases will include joy but that seems so unbelievable in the time of diagnosis right i remember a very clear idea and it was within maybe a week of diagnosis day that popped into my head and it was this idea of game over and not like i need to quit because the game's over but those games that I had been playing my whole life are irrelevant. And games in the sense of what you thought your life was going to be, what you wanted your life to be, how your life compares to other people's lives. And I started to realize, because basically it was either true or felt true that the worst had happened. My firstborn, my only child, was going to die young, maybe soon. And what worst thing could ever happen to anyone? So if you're going to play the game of life and try to win it, well, I just lost it, you know? So anything else that felt like the game of life, like, is my job a good one? Or is my house a good one? Or any of those sort of comparison things just didn't matter. And the other part of game over was kind of like, um, so now we have to start something new. That's not working. That past life isn't, isn't my life anymore. 
So what's this new life? And that takes a while to learn, you know, what is, what is the version of a good life now? Right. Uh, I think actually naming it game over is brilliant, Daniel. And I think that it was really effective. And I think a lot of us can relate to that, especially since I think in the beginning, when stuff is swirling around you and you're like in the eye of this hurricane, what you see is like, yeah, it's all of your expectations, right? It's this movie that you had made up in your head, perhaps your entire life about what it was going to look like and what your kids were going to look like and who they were going to be and what you were going to bestow on them. And you kind of plotted out their path and it all just comes crashing down and you can't even imagine anything else and you're devastated. When this whole time you had a fictitious character that never was, that isn't, and that would never have been anyway without the rare disease or without the diagnosis. And it's it's a really, really, I would say that was probably one of the hardest things for me personally to go through was the expectations right away. The game over. Yeah. I like that you called it a fictitious character. I think every parent goes through that. It's just a little maybe easier or gentler with a kid that's in typical health. You, Even for our kids that are healthy and typical health, we, we probably have these ideas and expectations of a fictitious character. And then we start to discover who that real kid is. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll have to think a little differently. But, but yeah, it, it it changes the child's capabilities and their fundamental, you know, um, growth, you know, whether it's mental or physical capabilities. That's just such a huge blow. I think I took a little comfort in, in our case. It, it's an X-link. Menke's disease is an X-link disease. So two thirds are inherited from the mom and one third are de novo or, you know, new mutations. And ours was a, a spontaneous mutation. And that just made it all the more random, you know, genetic, literally genetically random, but also felt cosmically random. And that took away some of the sting of, I certainly, my wife didn't have to deal with that possible guilt of, did I pass this on? Could I have done something? Should I have known? At least that was off the table. But also just the random things happen to people, right? And whether it's a bolt of lightning or a bus or whatever, and this random thing happened to people that was us. We are people. Of course, it could happen to us, and it did. And then as you learn a little bit more about rare disease and you hear it's one in 10 people, it doesn't seem, it, that helped, I think, with the why of it, right? I was never somebody to say, oh God, why me for the good stuff, right? anything good that came my way, I didn't think, why did I get to have this? And then I think that was somewhat useful to me in thinking, why did the bad thing happen? You know, it's not, oh, why me? Why? You know, I think it's, it, in some ways, there was a weird comfort from the the scientific randomness of the gene mutation. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I know that there's an extra layer of tough stuff and guilt and shame and whatever it is uh, for when you find out that you did in fact pass this on, they did inherit you, inherit something from you or the other parent. It definitely takes that bit away 
for those of us who did have kids with a de novo mutation. And I love that it so beautifully floated you somewhere else. But I do feel like for me and maybe some other people listening for a moment, I felt like a victim. I felt, okay, I didn't give it to him to my son. But like, why did this happen to me if it's so random? And if it's never going to happen, and everybody has all these healthy children, why did it happen to me? Why did it happen to him? And I was really upset for a while. Um, And, you know, I was like, I did. I was so ignorant and just selfish a little bit. And I'm not ashamed of any of those feelings. But I I thought, you know what? I did my hard thing already. Like, I thought that I had probably gone through the worst thing that was really ever going to happen to me, which is so funny now. But I was like, this can't happen. I've already overcome so much. And then that moment does happen that you spoke of where you just kind of settle into those, those random happenstances and you move along with them. Yeah, it is definitely. There's there's. I think always going to be feelings of it's unfair because it is unfair, but it's like almost like what you tell your kids when they say something's unfair. Yeah, if you can, if you can get yourself to this kind of attitude, it's like, of course things are unfair. The world is full of unfair, and now here's your turn at one more unfair thing, and it's awful. But it's it's been dealt to you, and and there's really not a way out of it. Yeah, I think that one of the most important things too to just know and it's finally become like a great little buzz saying is it's okay if you're not okay yeah and you know how important it is to allow yourself to feel all of these stages these true stages of grief for however that shows up for you and sometimes more than others and sometimes one way more than the other like you've got to do it You've got to do it because bad things just compound when you're ignoring how you're feeling or even when you're minimizing how you're feeling, right? I know for me, for a while, I pretended that, I don't, wouldn't necessarily say pretended, but I was just, it was just who I was. I, I knew I could handle things. I knew I was capable. I knew I had coping skills. I knew I had support. I liked to be easygoing. I liked people to not need anything. And I was walking through life like I was going to live it just like all of my other friends were with their kids. And that was a harsh reality that was really minimizing what I was going through. Yeah. I think all of those personality traits you just mentioned, you, you think they can carry you through and they certainly help you carry through. I think, you know, my wife and I probably have many of those traits or we we like to think we do. But even so, when you're doing well, it it looks like you're pulling it off and you're you're managing and you're you're almost at the normal that you used to think was normal or your friends have as normal. And then I like to say that like we kept it working just enough and if one little variable went off for us it came crashing down and that could be something silly like we got a flat tire that day and that has nothing to do with lucas right but it just shifts our world like we have that straw that breaks the camel's back and you can't now the system doesn't work anymore and in hindsight i've I've come to realize how much um, routine 
routine worked well for Lucas, but it really worked well for us too, because I think we were craving predictability when, when you couldn't have any. And so we were manufacturing it a little bit in strict schedules, right? So his catheter was every three hours on the dot. And the urologist would tell us you could go plus or minus an hour. It doesn't matter. But we did not vary, you know, because comfort came from that and manageability came from that. And it was it was something we could be effective in, right? Oh, I love how you said that you were manufacturing that to stay afloat in a sense. I think so many people can relate to that. Yeah, there's there's so many unknowns and so many variables. And if you can eliminate a few of them for yourself, even if it's just what is your schedule, what is your daily routine, it it just, that's a little bit of comfort. And when, you know, that thing happens when that car, when, when that tire goes flat, or when you finally did all of the hard things to get to the appointment and your child pukes all over and everything is ruined, <laughs> like... I think it's important to be like, yeah, God, this is this is the worst. And maybe just that's that's the way it is. You're having a crappy day, but know that the next day is going to be different and that there's always going to be these moments that perhaps bring you 10 notches down. But then maybe you go home that night and you get to snuggle your little kiddo and you get to hear them laugh and it brings you back up. I think we do have this oddly <laughs> like luxury of getting to recognize moments like that earlier than maybe other parents do and maybe getting to really enjoy them fully. Yeah, I agree. I think when you call it a luxury, that's a great way to think of it. I've talked about it as sort of getting permission which is permission none of us need, but we, we sort of forget about things that we've heard our whole lives, you know, pay attention to the here and now, live for the moment, tomorrow may never come, all those kind of things. But if they're not real to you or urgent to you, you might not give them the attention and let yourself embrace them. But when your child sort of forces that, the, the, the situation you're in demands that you start to think a new way, then yes, it can be a luxury that other people could have too, but we get it delivered to us maybe more imperatively. Right? Absolutely. It's something that just really doesn't go away and it just gets brighter. I feel like it's a muscle, right? <laughs> and it's pretty awesome. It's, it's something I'm definitely proud of, and I'm not sure that I would have. I mean, I, I think I did this before, Ford, but I definitely wouldn't perhaps not have gotten better at it. I don't know. Yeah. I, in general, I, I don't really love the expression for teachers say it. You know, I learned more from the student than they learned from me. But I think it really does apply with these these special kiddos that they operate in a different way and they force us to operate in a different way. And if their communication is limited, what, how do we respond to that? And if, if all we get from them is, is happy noises and unhappy noises, how meaningful are those happy noises? Ford's laugh or Lucas's laugh are just amazingly intoxicating things. Intoxicating. I love that. Yes, definitely. They become huge. And I think when you begin 
and you're, you're seeing these small victories or these small happy moments and you celebrate them and you celebrate them more and more as time goes on for sure. But when you get to do that, especially in the beginning, when perhaps you're in the depths of despair, it gives your heart a break from all of the scary stuff and the bad stuff and the expectations. It gives you a break and it just pushes that over into the corner for a while and it just lets you be there and it lets you enjoy all of the good stuff so much more. Yeah. It, it kind of cancels out the noise for a little bit. That's a great way to think of it. Which is really important. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to think of it because the big complaint you hear so many times from rare disease families is the isolation. But even isolation could have a silver lining, which might be what you just said, is that it can cancel out some of the noise. Finding your people. I mean, anybody who's ever listened to this podcast knows that was a big one for me. Um, was there a point that you felt like that? Did you feel like you needed to seek out other families? Oh, absolutely. Other dads? Yeah. Did, was there a point where you kind of hit a wall and you were like, I can't, I can't live like this? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, if I had a calendar, I would be able to verify it. But I think it came rather quickly. And, you know, as soon as I was, but that might be a year down after diagnosis day, rather quickly. Um, but I, I think one of the reasons I tried to put Lucas's story out there was to find others. And I was lucky there was a, um, at the time, it was sort of pre Facebook. So it was a Yahoo group for Menke's families. And it was actually called Menke's Moms. And I took a tiny bit of exception that I was a dad and not a mom. <laughs> and uh, eventually they changed it to Menke's Families and it's now a Facebook group instead. And there's majority moms, but maybe three or four active dads in there. So I turned to that like a life raft, you know, that was going to be my, my next source of hope and comfort and information. And it was, but I had, even though I've talked about letting go of comparisons, right? And letting go of expectations. As soon as I found that population, the ones that were facing the same disease as my son, I thought, now there's going to be answers. And there were some answers, but it wasn't predictive. And that's what I was really craving, right? And so many of these diseases, the symptoms are on a spectrum. You might have the milder case, you might have the more severe case. So then you hear the family that has the same disease you're facing, and they're talking about seizures. Well, they are indicated for Menke syndrome, but Lucas never had seizures or somebody's kid is walking and talking. And I think, well, that's not happening for us. So even though I sort of prided myself that I could let go of comparison, here I was again, I was falling into that trap. I was craving it. I wanted answers. I wanted predictions. And I realized later, maybe just in the past year, that if you let go of comparisons, a lot, you know, as much as you can, um, how much else are you losing there? Are you losing, we use them as our anchors or our moorings for, you know, what's good, what's bad, well, compared to what, and without them, are we too much adrift? So it's, it's really interesting how I, to me, how, much human nature it is to compare and, and how we crave it. And, and it, it 
it orients us, I guess. Monkey see, monkey do. Wow, I I did kind of have an aha moment for myself when you said that you were searching in these in this specific group of monkeys to see where everything aligned and that you noticed that you were comparing again. And I, I, th- I did that too. Uh, you know, some of the kids have seizures and this and that. And I guess it didn't make me feel better in any way. It actually probably brought me down a notch. It was a disappointment in a sense because it felt yeah. like uh, even here, the answers aren't the ones I need. Right. Yes. No one, not even these people, because everyone tells you, doctors will tell you, it's probably the other parents that are going to have the best answers for you. Right. Well, yes, the best answers, but not the ultimate answer that is really lurking in the back of your mind. And so it, it's almost like coming up to another dead end. You know, not even here will I get the answers I was hoping for. Oof. So true, which I think is another reason to keep searching, right? Like just because you've found your diagnosis room and your group of people, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be your support. Maybe Maybe a couple are and maybe the kids are or whatever, but don't keep, don't stop looking because there's other things that you don't know that you maybe needed along this journey that are going to come from the most random people in this community, which is something I'm finding out continuously, you know, just getting the opportunity to meet so many through social media. There's so many avenues that you can kind of go down for whatever reason that you need at that time. And there's always going to be someone there that's going to lend a hand or that's going to be a little further along in the journey for whatever it is that you need at that time. Definitely. And to the extent that I just characterized it as not getting the answers you need, that tends to be the more symptomatic scientific type answers. But the emotional support is dead on. And, And that, I think, for anyone who's new to this, doesn't have to come from the disease specific community. I think yeah. anyone who's faced any rare disease, uh, you and I and the people we know that we consider our friends in the rare disease space, we bond over a very shared experience, even if the symptoms aren't too similar for our kids. So that that is not to be underestimated, that maybe it's not a scientific answer or a, a prognosis answer, but it's a support that you might not find elsewhere. Yeah, true, true that. <laughs> I think once you do start opening that door a little bit too and like letting the light in, that that is, that's your hope, right? Like that's when maybe that can start to foster. Maybe it's the first time you're starting to see it is when you can break out and you kind of are over that first hurdle of, you know, those really tumultuous times in the beginning. And you can, I don't know, you can kind of make a choice, right? And it's different for everyone. Some of us say choice, some of us say mindset, some of us say moving forward. What do you think was, was it for you, Daniel, that like really kind of opened your eyes to not comparing so much to letting go of expectations and to forging on your own way. Boy, yeah. I think it just seemed very clear to me that there was no choice. And I know later as 
as people looked at how we handled it, some of them were kind enough to say, you guys do a great job with this. You really, you've really done good things for Lucas or, you know, and that's very flattering. But I, I always felt like, what choice does anyone have? You take care of your kid. You, even when you're dealt this very unexpected, very difficult thing, it's not different than the parenting mission of any parent. You take care of your kid. And so it, it never felt to me like a choice or even like, yes, it required a different approach, but it all just fell under the category of what does my child need? And I'm going to do that. And I think you talked about getting over the hurdles. This might be useful for people that are listening that are newer, that are closer to a new diagnosis. We've all heard the stages of grief, and you may have even heard that they apply to diagnosis. Not People grieve their diagnosis, not just grieve a death. And, and that comes to the point we made about expectations. You, you're, you're letting go of your fictional character of your child that you thought you were going to have. That fiction is dead because of this diagnosis. So in that sense, stages of grief as they relate to death. But it was years later that I realized that even in the literature, you know, Kubler-Ross stages of grief, they say it's not so much death. That's one example. It's any shock event that triggers. Well, what could be more shocking than a rare disease diagnosis? So of course you need to go through those stages. And, you know, if it hasn't occurred to you as a newly diagnosed person, you know, read, read about those stages and know that, uh, they're going to happen and you have to get over those hurdles. And the other thing that I didn't know about those stages is they don't happen in order and they don't just happen once each time. You know, it's not just denial once and bargaining once and anger once. You might repeat, rinse and repeat, you know, before you're maybe in a little better place to adapt and move on or move through or develop your new approaches that are going to, you know, help you face the life you have versus the life you thought you'd have. Yes. I think that it's really important what you said about grief, especially for those in the beginning, because I don't think a lot of people know that that's what it is. And I don't think that a lot of people feel allowed to call it that because everyone assumes grief means death. And I think when you can harness <laughs> that idea of that path of healing uh, through those stages of grief and you can recognize them, that that is what is going on, that that is really some of the biggest, I mean, that was, that was one of the biggest things in my toolkit is when I, it was when I recognized that that is what I was feeling and that it was okay to feel that and that I didn't have imposter syndrome anymore right. about it. And I felt so free. I felt so free when I was able to name it. Yes. And then that also kind of shifted my mindset of no one, you know, why not me, right? Like, of course, nobody, nobody wants to have a kid with a rare disease, but if it's going to happen to someone, you know what? I'm probably a really good person for it to happen to because I don't really know how to explain that, I guess. But I just kind of shifted myself from why me to why not me. And I pulled every little bit of who I am 
to the table to be Ford's mom. Yeah, I think that misunderstanding of the stages of grief only applying to death gives us maybe a little guilt that if you're grieving, you shouldn't be because that's sort of admitting defeat. You're already thinking of your child as as gone before they're gone. And that's I think that's a permission we need that when you, you know, you read the literature a little differently and it says shock event is what you're grieving, not death is what you're grieving. And if you can make that known to your friends and family or your colleagues so that you take away that stigma. It's not because I gave up on my child. It's it's still a valid phase we need to go through even before death is on the horizon or the immediate horizon. And like you said, too, like it's not going to be concurrent. Like things are you're going to feel things at different times and there isn't nothing comes in chronological order. Like and you'll you'll find that out quick as a rare disease parent that like there are no plans the expectations of the fictitious character go all the way down to your next outing. I do want to um, put a point on the moms who are carriers and, and may have known or not known that there was a chance of their child inheriting. And I know we mentioned that that's a different opportunity for feeling guilty. And I want to be really clear to say that no one should feel guilty. We just know that some people do, that it's natural to feel that way, uncommon to feel that way. But it, I don't want to suggest that people with a family history have done anything more wrong than anyone who got a bolt out of the blue from the genetic randomness. 100%. And thanks for, thanks for going back to that and really putting that in stone because obviously. And, and that even goes further too, right? Like your own family planning after that is your decision and it's your family and yeah. like it goes on and on. And there's nothing wrong with any choice that you make with meaningful intention. Right. And I, I am still after you know, 11 years of experience in this sort of subculture, uh, I'm, I'm amazed. It, uh, and I, I don't want to sound at all judgmental on this, but I'm amazed at people that are more willing to embrace, yes, if I have another child, he or she will have this disease. And yes, I want to do that anyway. And I just, in our family planning, that that never came up. We had one child after Lucas, and we had a relative certainty that he wouldn't get the same disease as Lucas. It'd be like lightning striking twice. So that wasn't a factor for us. But for those who do face that, I think that is a almost a generosity of spirit that is another level for me. I mean, you could, well, that's another episode of a show, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you put it, generosity of spirit. Yeah. I also think in the beginning, and perhaps forever, I think an important way to kind of move through this too is to really write stuff down and it doesn't have to be pretty and it doesn't have to be dated and it doesn't have to be in the same spot maybe you're by your computer that day maybe you're on your voice recorder on your phone maybe you have a beautiful leather bound journal but I feel like writing that stuff down is doing yourself a big service and 
it's tendering <laughs> and you will look back at that stuff and you will see how far you've come and you will be so proud of yourself. I kind of look at it as the same way of maybe thinking about, not thinking about, but doing it, maybe writing a letter to your, your distant self, you know, like 25, 30 years ahead of time and writing a letter to that person. How are they going to be? How are they going to feel? What kind of values really matter to them? And I think when you can put this stuff down and you can kind of have this idea of who you are and what you want your life to be like, that it also kind of helps you refocus on the things that are important to you, your core values. It helps shed away those things maybe a little sooner, maybe a little softer when you can, I don't know, really just form form your new special little bubble. I don't know if that makes sense for anyone but me, no. but I, th I thought it was helpful. I, I agree 100%. I think whether you're writing entirely for yourself or you think you'll share this writing with the public or friends or someone, it still has value. And it has the value you mentioned that is not just the historical record that you can come back to and remind yourself, this is what was going on for me then. But it also has the therapeutic act of writing, act of forcing yourself to formulate your thoughts, which may be in too much of a swirl, right? And, and you put them down into words and you think, is that the word for what I'm feeling right now? Or do I need another word? And for me, releasing that writing into the public, you know, one of the first blog posts I shared was a little bit of testing. Am I feeling things that I should be feeling that other people would be feeling if they were in this, you know, can anyone relate? And then you throw it out there and you find out, yes, people can relate. You're not crazy. You're not as alone as you thought you were. And then the other aspect of that, if you choose to be a little public with your storytelling, the people that find you, right? I, uh, you know, you can't, you can actively seek out some people, but the ones that seek you out could, could be, you know, the, the most beneficial, the most amazing allies as you go forward. Well, I would say that about you, Daniel. You found me. I didn't know anything existed yet about what you were doing or about Menkes. And, you know, I was just finally opening this door to face it. And, you know, what's happened since I've met you, just even in the form of connection to this community and the friendship that we've made and the things I've learned and the insight that you share has changed my life. I know. I, I right back at you, Effie. I can't believe it was about a year ago I was in a hospital and I needed a podcast to listen to and I found yours and it was the perfect thing to hear at the perfect time. I really couldn't sleep at night in the hospital. And then you find your episode was about not being able to sleep at night in the hospital. It was it was just destiny, I think. But and and people listening should know that Effie and I have never met face to face. It's all phone calls and emails, but we, I don't know, we each were doing part of what the other person needed. And it's amazing to combine those parts and, and amplify. And that's, that's what we all do. That's the best news for anyone who's new to the rare disease club. <laughs> no one wants to be in the club, but there are really great people in it. 
It's the best club I've ever been in. I've been in some clubs. This is the best one. <laughs> and you would never think that, but. Yeah, I know you think everybody's sad and we are sad sometimes, but we do things other than be sad. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, I mean, I hope that you have gathered something that makes you feel even a little better in some way, or perhaps you know someone that you can share this episode with. Daniel and I are going to continue these conversations in a few more episodes to come. But thanks for thanks for joining in and listening to us. And if you ever need anything or if you have any questions between the two of us, we can direct you almost anywhere that you might need to go. <laughs> we both have a lot of recommendations for groups and books and podcasts that we can share with you as well. And films, Daniel and Bo's channel, The Disorder Channel. Anything else in closing for today, Daniel, that you want to leave with our audience? That might be good for now. That was kind of a lot, I think. <laughs> All right, Daniel, until next time. Okay. Thanks, Effie. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.